this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out union at Patreon. And uh, you can help us make the next episode happen by joining at patreon.com forward slash dig me out. We have a whole bunch of new tiers for 2019. And of course, with new tiers come new folks joining us, joining the union our steering committee and our board of directors. Jay just recently, Keith mm-hmm. Badge jumped up, became a union I saw member. Going to get himself a sticker. Yep. And if uh, you know, by the time this episode airs, folks in the states should have their stickers in hand. Who for the uh, January round, and then uh, once the February charges go through on the Patreon uh, billing cycle. The, the next round of stickers will go out. Now, the UK ones, I'm not sure how long the boats take to get across the, uh, the Atlantic and <laughs> the, go through the, the channels. And, you know, the steamers got to, you know, chug across the ocean with the bags of mail. <laughs> and that's how they do it, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, still. Yeah, that's, that's right. Done. Yeah. So uh, there's some ones going to the UK as well. And we thank everyone for uh, helping us build this thing up this community we've got going here and you uh put a little surprise in there right i did put a little surprise Uh... there's a little surprise for everybody i'm not gonna say what it is it's not weed i'm just gonna tell you that (laughs) (laughs) not that kind of a surprise is that legal legal in ohio now uh medically yes here's the funny thing (laughs) We're, we're gonna get to the actual episode in a minute there was an article about how um, there, you know, there's now dispensaries in Ohio for medical marijuana, but uh-huh. that um, on state campuses, because they get federal funding and the federal government doesn't recognize, you know, the legality of it, you cannot you cannot have medical marijuana on state campuses. And I'm just like, oh, yes, all the college students will definitely adhere to the no marijuana rule. That's definitely right. going to happen. I'm going to jump in here early just because it relates to my my employment history. I used to work for University of Michigan's police department in Ann Arbor forever has had a $25 fine for marijuana under an ounce. And I would regularly have to say to students, go across the street. They'll give you a $25 ticket. You'll be fine. You get <laughs> caught on U of M property. It's a misdemeanor. You can lose your student aid, blah, blah, blah. Good that, advice. That that's good advice. That voice you just heard, voice you just heard, is a gentleman who's been with us many times before, both for review episodes and some roundtables. Welcome back, Mr. Eric Peterson. Thank you, thank you. You're here for your 12 month pick, so let's get to it. Tell everyone the album that you have selected and why. I selected the 1996 Machine Fish album by the band The Galactic Cowboys picked the galactic cowboys because they were one of my favorite bands in that era and this album was kind of a a rebirth for them they had lost their major label deal with geffen records 
and had uh, been signed to Metal Blade Records. I also think it's an interesting moment in time musically where things were shifting. And the Galactic Cowboys are kind of an odd band in that there's so many contradicting sounds and ideas going on in their music. You know, musically, you've got some metal, you've got some alternative, you've got some uh, some melodic elements, you've got some progressive metal elements. And then lyrically, you've got your typical kind of love songs and whatnot, but you've also got a lot of songs about uh, frustration and things going on in the pop culture. So I, I thought they would be an interesting discussion at the very least. And I want to mention that uh, in addition to the uh, album we're going to talk about, if you are a Patreon member, we're also going to discuss the EP that came out the same year uh, called Feel the Rage, which was the single. Uh, it's the, it's the yep. uh, track from the album. And it would you know, as would often happen, there'd be an EP or a single with bonus tracks. And there's some bonus tracks we want to discuss. Uh, and that'll be exclusive to Patreon for our uh, members there. So we should talk a little bit just about the history, and then we'll talk about the comments that we got. Um, so this is a band from Houston, Texas, formed in uh, 89. They've had some breakups and some get-back-togethers, and uh, there's been albums sporadic uh, throughout that time. You mentioned that they were on uh, – what was the label? Uh DGC? DGC, yeah. yeah. And then moved to Metal Blade. So the first album came out in 91, self-titled. Uh, second album, 93, Space in Your Face. Then the album we're talking about, Machine Fish, 96. Uh, and then 97, The Horse That Bud Bought, 98, At the End of the Day. And then 2000 was Let It Go. And then in 2017, got back together, Long Way Back to the Moon. Now, it's been a pretty consistent lineup. It's... um. Bed Huggins on lead vocal and guitar, and then Dane, is it Sonnier? I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Something like that. Uh, guitarist. Apologies. <laughs> Wally Farkas, uh, when uh, he took over guitar when Dane left in uh, 95, mm-hmm. and then Monty Colvin on the bass. Mm-hmm. And then on uh, drums, uh, also vocals and keyboards, uh, Alan Doss. We should mention that um, pretty much everyone contributes vocals. I believe there's an album, I don't know if you're more familiar with the band in terms of their overall catalog or not. Is there not an album where, like, they all sing, where they have multiple vocalists? Or is that just, like, a couple tracks? So generally speaking, uh, Ben Huggins and uh, Monty Colvin do the the lead vocals on various tracks, and it seems like they're kind of the the two uh, main songwriters in the band. So, the, but there are tracks where all of them, at the very least, are contributing harmony vocals. Gotcha. Okay. And that's pretty consistent throughout the band. Okay, so this came out January thirtieth, ninety six. So just at the start of the year. And then the EP came out uh, October 8th, 1996. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some comments over at Patreon. Do you want, hold on. Do you, want, do you want to talk about the Nirvana thing? Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry to jump in there. Nope. Go ahead. This is So the, the story goes that they were assigned to Geffen Records, 
and their record had been recorded, I believe, in 1990, and it was going to be released in 1991. And people at Geffen had told them that it was going to be their priority. It was going to be the next thing they pushed after Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 had been launched, marketed, and were out there in the world. So that was, I believe, during the spring and summer of 1991 or 1990. I mean, there's a long tail to these promotional cycles. Oh, yeah, 91, I mean, there were singles coming out for Use Your Illusion. I mean, that didn't come out until September, but there were singles throughout the whole yes. like second, third quarter of the year. So they get the Guns N' Roses albums out there, and they're getting ready to get Galactic Cowboys uh, in the shoot, so to speak, and ready to go. And... Nirvana hits, which is also on DGC, and all of the resources that the label apparently go straight to Nirvana, kind of leaving Galactic Cowboys in the dust. So at least Monty Colvin has been on record as saying that uh, that Kurt Cobain stole his career, <laughs> which m- may or may not be true, but definitely uh, drew away the resources of Geffen from promoting this band and their album to uh, to focusing on Nirvana. So from from a point of of 90s rock, that's kind of a very interesting point of divergence. Yeah. Yeah. And it says a lot about DGC, too. I mean, they were they were um, they had a lot of different uh, irons in the fire, if you you will. And they hit on that one. And yeah. And uh, everything changed after that. But they were trying a bunch of different things in the early 90s. All right, so some of the comments we got. Scott Witt said, This is when we were hoping that Houston was going to be the next scene. King's X, Cowboys, Atomic Opera all got signed. Sam Taylor was supposed to have the magic touch. A couple of these guys were in a band called Awful Truth that were very good. Uh, supposedly they had an album that was recorded but never released, and then that got cleared up that they did, it did get released. Um, he said, Cowboys were good, but they never grabbed me like King's X. Um, let me let me jump in here. Uh, Sam Taylor was the manager of King's X, Galactic Cowboys, in a band called Atomic Opera, which is uh, in a similar vein to more. They sound more like Galactic Cowboys than King's X, but they have that kind of heavy melodic uh, rock with metal influence, progressive rock influence, and then the harmony vocals. Okay, and a lot of the I believe a number of the guys in this band have done projects with the guys in King's X are in like, yes, Doug Pinnock's got a band of a, what's it called? It's called like the uh, Doug pound. Maybe. Yeah. Several something like bands. That. Um, and I've worked like, I believe one of the guys did like a couple albums with Ty Tabor. So yeah. there's a lot of crossover with that band. Um, However, there were some dissenting voices in the comments. Uh, Darren Leach said, had never heard of them before, and I won't be listening again. Shows the bad side of the 90s. Oh. So my frustration with that comment is that there's not a lot of substance as to what it was that he didn't like. Right. Was it the vocals? Was it the style? Was it the whatever? I mean, for me, if people didn't like something, that's fine. Just kind of why? Well, Tara McCook gave us a little bit more depth to her her comment there. She said, this is dot, 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 fine. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of the Galactic Cowboys before this, so I came in with no expectations. The Lens is a really good track, and most of the rest 
of it is a decent example of the genre, but this record suffers from let's fill the entire length of the CD syndrome. This did not need to be 70 minutes long. The songs blend together into a wall of loud 90s guitar effect. A lot of these long records of songs that all sound basically the same. Um, I'd have to cut Stress, Psychotic Companion, Six Minutes Long, Yikes, Easy to Love, and Mm -hmm. 9th of June to make a tidier record. All in all, I'm not mad I listened to it, but other bands do this better. There's some... Okay, we'll talk about the length, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Patrick Testa said, this is the band that wrote, this, this is the band that those I encountered knew the name, had no idea what they sounded like. We would tell friends that we were headed out to go see, go get the funk on with a galactic. And they would say, oh, galactic cowboys. And we would say, no, man, we're going home, down home, front porch, New Orleans funk with galactic. Mind you, I thought galactic cowboys was the middle of the road jam pop band until i just now <laughs> brought up to st- steam um i re- i remember thinking the same thing interesting uh, i mean uh, i just get it the funny that the, at the same time there's two bands using that word in their name and being a little confused at times uh scott Hallgram says great band great album i've been waiting for you to get around to them well there you go we're here we've gotten around um, and then Whitney Beeler, I really liked Galactic Cowboys, fine choice, although Machine Fish is the only Galactic Cowboys album that I don't own. My favorite was At the End of the Day. All right. Enough chatter. Let's talk about this record. So, Jay, had you mm-hmm. listened to this band before? I, I did. I've seen them live. Oh. Um, yeah. I saw them... It must have been. I think they opened for Dream Theater. Yeah, so they toured this would with have them. Been maybe ninety one, ninety two. So it's either the first record or the second record that they were touring for. And yeah, I remember they were you know great live, very impressive. They pulled off all the harmonies. I think somebody I knew had the cassette, or I might have dubbed the cassette at some point of the second record. Um, so I was familiar with what the band sounded like. I had never listened to this record and didn't really keep up with them. But uh, they were just one of those bands where you you know you see them live and you're like you know impressed. But I don't think any of the songs really grabbed me to the point where I really felt compelled that I had to go out and put down eighteen bucks on the CD mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety one. Gotcha. I had not I had not listened to anything, so this is going in completely raw as they say. All right. So Jay, tell me one thing you liked about machine fish. Uh, I like the choruses. There's some really good melodies, um, very hooky. Uh, and they do some killer harmonies, which is, I think when the band is working, that's the secret ingredient that makes them unique. You know, there's other bands that do harmonies, but I don't, not too many can uh, combine them in such a schizophrenic way as this band can with some of the heavy riffs um, and the progressive elements and then they'll just do straight up power pop you know uh, vocals and harmonies which to me that's what caught my ear when I saw them live and still when I listen to the record now or you know this record at least and go back and revisit the band uh, it's the part that really is unique you know there's some great playing and great musicianship across the board um, as well, 
but to me the the thing that um it was it's the it's the vocal and then just the uh, the ability to write hooks, like they definitely have the talent, like they can, they know how to write a hook. Um, we'll get into, you know, it doesn't always work from a consistency standpoint, mm-hmm. but, uh, they definitely know, know what they're doing. Yeah. The thing that I liked about this record is the sort of weird juxtaposition of there's stuff that's super melodic and uh, it made me think of in in some ways like a band like enough's enough yep uh yep. with the have those harmonies and there's obviously a nod to uh you know it, it gets tossed around a lot but like beatles you know that being an influence that, that got tossed around when we talked about the king's x record king's x record ear candy but then there's also stuff that's really aggressive and heavy and would not you know, if if you told me that this band had opened for Metallica in you know 1995 for the Load or something, I would have been like, "Yeah, I could I could see that." So they they do that pretty well in terms of mixing what seem like disparate sort of sounds and ideas and coming up with something that's pretty unique. I didn't pick up as much as the uh, maybe it's on the earlier records but this doesn't feel that progressive to me um it feels more straight ahead and maybe that's why i kind of dug it in terms of i could just sort of rock out with most of these songs whereas there was a few times where um i'm thinking like on where they got more indulgent and then i was like losing my focus mm-hmm. but when they kept it tight i mean the songs are you know, well-written, the vocals are, you know, as opposed to a, a number of bands in this sort of space, they're really fun to listen to. He actually has stuff to say with the lyrics. Uh, I caught my, you know, self sort of honing in on what he was singing, which is pretty rare for me to be listening to like heavy metal or hard rock or whatever you want to, you know, categorize this and being like, Oh, that's a pretty thoughtful statement. And, uh, but I, but I did find that happening while listening to this. Um, so I like I like there was a lot of different things going on that if you were to like describe this band and be like, well they're this this and this and be like I'm not sure if that's gonna work. But they they're able to pull it off. Right. So, Eric, what uh, what was your first exposure to this band? Was it seeing them live or picking up the no, record? No, I, I, did, I did actually see them live. That was later on. I saw them actually in July of 1996 in Atlanta. Does anybody remember what was going on in Atlanta, July of 96? Olympics? Yep, I was there doing my internship for, for my degree. And I, uh, I moved my schedule around so I could go see them open for King's X. That was a that was a very special uh, event for me. That was great, but I encountered them probably in 1992. There was a record store that was under a Tower Records called Tracks, which I believe was originally a cassette store. And I was there with my friends, and I was wandering around, and I saw the first Galactic Cowboys album. I had no clue what it was, 
And I, I just picked it up and I bought it. And we went back to my buddy Ryan's house. And uh, his parents had this super nice, like, CD player setup because they were into classical music. And I put that first record on and I just went, whoa, this is bad. And then I listened to it again and again and again. And eventually it kind of, I kind of picked up on what was going on. And the thing is, we, my friend Ryan and I were both King's X fans at the time both major King's X fans. And we didn't really pick up on the the connection until I read about it later on. So uh, that first record, eventually it, it hooked me for the same things you guys are talking about. The harmonies, the the kind of power pop underpinning, the, uh, the heavy riffs, but also the lyrics that were talking about something that was real and something more than just partying or girls or any of that typical stuff that we hear about all the time. And... Uh, so I started following them at that point. I was there when Space in Your Face came out, and I picked that up. Uh, I was on an early King's X mailing list, with, which was you know the early days of social media, where everybody would send an email to an address, and you would get, like, every Friday or whatever, you'd get a compilation of everybody's emails. And there were people that were involved in this scene in Houston that were contributing. So you would hear not just rumors, but, you know, oh, they're recording or they're playing here or there. So I was able to follow the band that way. They also had one of the, I think, early websites. So by the mid-90s, it was a little easier to get information about them. And so when this came out, I was I was ready for it. I was primed. I had been reading about it. I want to say that uh, Rip Magazine was a, was a big supporter of this band. Do you remember uh, Lawn Friends' Friend at Large uh, segments from Headbangers Ball at all? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of them, he always would would do these segments friend at large and oftentimes he'd go through new releases and then he'd single out one as his big recommendation one time it was galactic cowboys there was also an attempt to push their first video because they were on some early version of trl for that uh so I, they were out there and i was reading about them and hearing about them and having a little bit of contact with people that were in the scene with them and so that was my contact and it, the big thing that for me uh and we didn't talk about this in the intro, but uh, they're a band of guys who were Christians. They they grew up in the church. They came out of a, a nominally Christian scene, just like King's X, just like Atomic Opera. And if you really listen, you can pick up on some of that. And sometimes it doesn't age very well, but there's no swearing on this record. There's no explicit content about describing violence or sex or anything like that. Uh so, but at the same time, it's not what milk toast. It's not, it's not uninspired. It's not pushing a religious message in your face. Um, in fact, one of the songs, the ninth of June, is about uh, reflecting on somebody that uh, predicted the the rapture on the ninth of June, and it didn't happen. So the lyrics of the song reflect they're they're trying to come to terms with uh, with you know being in the secular world, but having this Christian background. Interesting. I didn't, I was not aware of that sort of angle with this band. Yeah, I wasn't either. I mean, I was always aware of the King, King's X angle, but uh, I guess I should have pieced it together being that those two bands were always so connected. And I do remember that they were uh, written about quite a bit. They seemed to be uh, appreciated at the time by musicians and writers. I'm not sure if they ever found a huge fan base, but I do no. remember there being buzz um, with particular writers, and they'd be a band that other bands would talk about. Yeah, I think they're one of those bands that had, had a following in their scene locally, 
But yeah, I mean, if you look at who they toured with, I mean, them touring with King's X made it sense, but they're out on tour with Anthrax and Dream Theater and Overkill. Yeah, that's a yeah. little bit weird. Yeah. I don't know. When we listen to that Stomp 442 record, I could see this band opening for that era of Anthrax. Well, yeah. the, the riffs are there. That, there's no doubt about that, but the the harmonies are so sweet and poppy. That's what it, they're one of those bands where you put two things together that don't seemingly work. They somehow make it work, but then you're struggling to figure out like who's their audience. Cause it's too heavy right, for right. pop fans and it's too poppy for heavy fans. So you know. I think one of the things I like about this band in this record is there's this, this conflict of, of elements, you know, that, that heavy rock stuff and, but the poppy stuff as well. And then the the lyrics that are maybe a little more intellectual or esoteric or deal with spirituality or straight up religion in some cases. And is that going to really appeal to a, to a, a metal audience in the 90s? Yeah. The, the combination reminded me a bit of the Wild Hearts in that. Yes. I remember re- reviewing that record, especially Feel the Rage. That's a song. I think there's parts of that that are very Wild Hearts-esque. Where That's um, you get the hooks. It, it has a hard rock feel at some time. It's got harmonies, but then they indulge in riffs and get, can get very heavy. And kind of sections of the songs or intros can be, you know, almost progressive in the the amount of riffs and time changes and like guitar stuff going on. Um, so that even though you wouldn't, I think, consistently listen to this band and think Wild Hearts, there's something about the uh, I don't know the 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 architecture of the band that reminded me of them. It's interesting you say that the bass player Monte Calvin Calvin after the band broke up did a kind of power pop solo project called uh, Crunchy, and uh, he actually references the Wild Hearts in one of their songs. Oh wow! There you go. Yeah, that was a band that I thought of when we were from a past episode, as far as uh, a comparison. Especially with, like you said, the amount of riffage that's going on. Yeah, yeah. Which also is, uh, I had hesitate to say it's like uh, something I don't like. I mean, I like listening to all the guitar riffing and stuff like that. But I understand what Tara brought up. Like, this is a long record. And yeah, yeah. It needed to be like 10 songs. Like, at 10 songs, this would be great. But man. because t- 12 of the 14 are like heavy, intense, there's just a lot to consume. Right. Yeah. Do you think this record w- would have worked a lot better if it was, say, an LP where you listen to one side, took a break, come back, listen to the other side or a cassette tape for that matter? Yeah. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. If you oh, were if you were to like, yeah. you know. Although I, you'd have to reduce some rearranging, because what do you got, like 22 minutes a side or something like that? Something like that. So you, you could either, you know, I'm looking at the track listing, like you wouldn't be able to fit the first five songs on the first side. You'd have to, you know, and then you're looking at maybe, I mean, then you're looking at like a nine song album based on what the lengths are, or if you have to do some rearranging, because... Maybe a two LP set that... uh Double album, <laughs> a double album. <laughs> well, then you can incorporate no. that EP into there. And there exactly. You go. There you go. 
Yeah. No, I, I I completely agree. I think it's I think that the the length is an issue. Um, you know when I I this was an album that was really important to me when it came out, and it's like a lot of records that are important to you when you're younger. It kind of falls away over the years. And uh, when I went back to re-listen to it, I was surprised at how well it held up. But I definitely felt that length. Well, yeah, musically, and and sonically, I think it holds up. The only thing that I had trouble with was um i don't know if you picked up on this jay maybe it was just i don't know if it was me or i did not like the snare sound on this record (laughs) it had like a ping to it that was like especially when i like if i cranked it it sounded good but if i turned it down all i heard was like tap 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 from the from the snare sound it was really weird um that it was such a difference between just a tiny amount of of, uh, volume change yeah, I found the um, the drums and the guitar eat up most of the mix, and there's a lot of really cool bass tones and playing on this record. But when the when it gets loud and it's loud most of the record, mm-hmm. um, the bass just disappears. So, I mean, the guitar and the drums are just eating everything up, and then whatever's left, they're they're layering in all these harmonies, which you know need space too. So yeah, I mean, I can I can see where you're coming from. I, I think the Drum sound suffers a little bit there in terms of uh, just how crushed everything is to to fit in the mix. Um, I actually really enjoy when the record on the record when the guitars pull back, mm-hmm. just because you hear all kinds of things you you that are probably there you just don't even know it. So you you get um, you know those bass tones come through and you breathe them more and you can understand the character of the singer and the vocal a little bit better. You know, get into the things that we don't like um, or don't work as well. You know, it does fall into some trappings of, the, you know, there's some songs in here that are definitely influenced by Alice in Chains. Um, there's some stuff that sounds a little Pantera-esque. They were uh, hanging out with the Pantera guys uh, along with King's X in this era or as they were developing. So that shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fear Not's an interesting song. It, parts of it sound... Uh, a lot like Alice in Chains, but uh, yep. when they get to the chorus, it, especially when it first hits, it sounds a lot like something more contemporary, like a Linkin Park-ish hmm. kind of. There's even like a spoken vocal in the background. It just sounds, uh, parts of it sound of the time and other parts sound ahead of its time. I love there's like an organ bit uh, under the midsection uh, that reminded me of kind of a, of Ghost, where there's just like galloping guitar part, and then there's just organ underneath it. That was a really cool um, little cool piece. But that that's a song. It's just it kind of covers everything. Like you, if you, I feel like I'm listening to a, a, um, um, a medley of, of 1990 to 1999 when I listen to a song <laughs> like that. It just got like a moment of everything that could, you could possibly squeeze in there. Yeah. Well, there's. I definitely heard the Alice in Chains. I also heard a little bit of Soundgarden in here. 
Yeah. It's one of these songs, I don't remember which one, definitely has kind of that Rusty Cage riff going on. Yeah, Idle Minds had, Jay, you mentioned Alice in Chains, like, yep. that had a very, like, a dirt sound yep. to it. That that riff almost could have been, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, not Them Bones, but one of those types of songs, you know, album track uh, songs from that record. Da- oh, it's Damn Them Bones, or no, Damn That River. That's that's the song I was thinking of. Yeah, that it sounds a lot like, um, which is and that's where where the record. That's probably a best example of me for me where the record doesn't work is just it just sounds overall derivative and uninspired. Where you know obviously much of the rest of the record sounds completely inspired. Idle Minds to me sounds like unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, and then, and it's. It's a lot to get through. So, like, you have a, a track ten, you have the lens. It's a really good song, but it's the tenth track, and you're like, you know, fifty minutes into the record at that point. Yeah, that's a the... great, great song. And to this day, it's something I'll throw on a playlist for iTunes or Spotify. I think it's also easy, uh, interesting to note that the majority of these songs were written by Monty Colvin, but the lens was written with, uh, with the the drummer. Alan and the, the singer Ben, so you, he had a little more collaboration uh, on the song. And the story of the song is about a girl that commissioned him to do a painting because he's a painter, and never paid him. So he had kept the the painting, and uh, he used that as his inspiration, at least for the lyrical part of that song. Okay. And his his take on it was that he thought this girl didn't think she looked attractive or beautiful, but he thought she did. And in the painting, he tried to ref- reflect that. And it's about the lens at which we, we look at people or we look at ourselves. Nice. Which, once again, is not something you typically get in a heavy metal song in 1996. No. 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 Well, well what's funny, though, is um, some of the – that's interesting. I, I, I was taken by a lot of, like, rage, struggle, fear, stress, like all of the, like, negative kind of sentiment – that's on the f- first half of the record that mm-hmm. felt to me like very typical nineties, you know? So there's kind of a mix here. I mean, obviously there's some, like you said, there's moments where, uh, lyrically it's different and there's some themes that you wouldn't typically hear, but then there's stuff flood, uh, scattered in. That's very stereotypical. And that's one of the things I think I struggled with as well. The struggle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, you so, juxtapose those with like "Easy to Love," which is like yeah. so different and such a cool song, but is so like when you compare it to the rest of the record, it's so out of place. When you and then you, look, I hear that and I go, I wish there was more like not versions of this song, but you know, aspects of this across the record where yeah. they were, you know, dialing it down a bit and and doing some stuff that didn't rely on just maximum riffage. Because that kind of so, gets old a little bit after a while. I got to ask you, Tim, easy to love. Where does that fall on the power ballad scale? <laughs> That's a good question.
I haven't done the actual slow dance test to that song. Uh, my guess it's probably it might be a, just a hair fast, but um, it might be more mid tempo than slow. But it's real mm-hmm. close. I mean, it could it could be a power ballad. But that's a that's a case where at that point I think you're about right in the middle of the record, right? So mm-hmm. track seven, yeah. You definitely get appreciation for the song, where some of the other material to this point, it's the song is can be fighting to come out because it's buried behind the the riffs and the you know just the sometimes aggressiveness of the record um where when that song comes up it's totally different you hear a bunch of things you didn't hear before and then i found myself just paying attention more to the song not that i would want the whole record to be like this but there's just something about i don't know the approach here that just feels more like natural less forced is that a sequencing issue maybe yeah probably and and well sequencing in just length you know yeah if this if this was track four and it was a 10 track record maybe this would be a completely different feel yeah but it's halfway through a 14 song record so it's the midpoint what did you hear in um the track six in this life the the vocal sounds different um, and it sounded like somebody to me, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that song and just the vocal in that song. I'm trying to remember who uh, I think. I think Monty sings that one. Okay. I don't know. It, it's it's kind of weird. I can't. I understand. I, I get what you're saying, but I can't quite place my finger on it. It's it a sounded... really odd juxtaposition of those sugary sweet choruses, and then like there's some yelling and yeah. <laughs> in the verses and it's it's i i don't know that it works the the, the uh, verse the tell me if i'm crazy the verse sounds like the the vocal sounds like bruce dickinson's like low angry register <laughs> in an iron maiden song i mean obviously not the high soaring part but when he does like the more restrained kind of lower register singing it sounded a lot like that even the way the guitars are done in the verse sounds a lot like a like a Iron Maiden album track, but then the chorus has nothing to do with that at all. It's totally different. I think that that goes back to what we were talking about with the, these clashing and elements that are coming from a whole lot of different kinds of music. I'm I'm sure that they were listening to Iron Maiden. I'm sure that a little bit of that slipped in there. There's a lot to digest here. There's there there is, and it's just you know we could go track by track. Oh, we're not gonna do that, uh, yeah. and just analyze the you know comparisons and you know we've already brought up you know a lot of maiden Ch- alice and chains uh, a lot of different options in terms of and it's really it can move quickly between songs and you can get a lot of different flavors but i think that also for some people that might not be i don't know like i guess this is pre-listening booth era so, yeah, I would imagine so, if one song didn't hit you, you're not probably not going to buy the record. Let let me uh, let me ask you about Psychotic Companion. What do you guys think of that song? I like you know what's funny is I like that like riff that really yeah. half heavy, but then it goes into like just nonsense for like the last couple minutes of the song. With I don't know if those are like 
samples of things or what have you. Yeah. I, I like it up until that part, but the yeah. last four minutes of the song are unnecessary. <laughs> uh, it, on the one hand, it, it's about a very dated topic. The idea of these psycho, these uh, like a that you would call in the nineties. Right. And so that's extremely dated. And I was ready to be like, I'm going to skip this song, but something about it just, it's really hooky and really, I don't know, really well-constructed maybe, except for you're right, that, that ending part that gets really weird. And it obviously goes on way too long. The chorus is almost ballad-like. You know, obviously the verses are brutally heavy, and then the chorus is, you could kind of cut that out and build a ballad around it almost. It's very soaring. Yeah. Yeah, it's a super melodic chorus. Mm-hmm. But it takes, I think, I think, does the first chorus come at like two and a half minutes into the song? Something like that. Yep. Yeah, there's just so much buildup to it. I mean, honestly, you could have like just made it a verse and a chorus with that long intro and just d- ended it at that point. Yeah, yep. I, I was just thinking they needed a producer to tell them to do that. Yeah, but did did you look to see who the producer on this record was? It's the drummer. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> no. If somebody, the drummer. If somebody That's... in the band's gonna produce the band, it can't be the drummer. Well, he he. To be fair, he was starting to get into production work for other artists and bands, but producing your own record can be really iffy. Yeah, no, I mean he, he can engineer it, but like the drummer, it can't be the one to come in and tell the guy writing the songs to, uh, hey, let's. I realize, you know, we all enjoy playing this tune, but it doesn't need to be seven minutes. Why don't we get it down to three and a half? The drummer's not going to be able to have that conversation. No, you need an outside voice. Yeah, you need somebody that's not on stage, that's a listener, not a uh, – or part of the job of the producer should be to be the listener to go, is this really going to work? Yeah. And, and I think that's um, – obviously, I have, there's a lot of material here in this band's history to listen to, but if they could get to – a compact version of these songs in most cases i think the vast majority of them would work really well and would be uh, could have even been commercially successful but they had to get down to the essence of what makes them good what makes the band good you know uh have some heavy riffs have the hooks have the harmonies um, I like when they get a little psychedelic, you know, mm-hmm. I think um, mm-hmm. the lens has a really good kind of psychedelic guitar lead uh, lyrically, you know, I think they're, they're, they're above most other metal bands at the time, but they just, if they could get the material tighter and get to the essence of the song, um, you know, a song like patting yourself on the back is a great, it's probably the, one of the poppiest songs on the record, but it starts off with you know forty seconds of of riffs that change like twelve times that don't need to be there. Just get if you cut right to like forty seconds in that song, the guitar riff changes and the vocal comes right in. And it's like just start there. Like we, there's nothing to happen before any, any of this that like I really needed to hear. Someday you're 
I think a lot. It's not just the length of the record uh, in terms of the amount of songs. I think it's just the songs need to be, be need to be edited. So one of the pieces of trivia about this band is uh, Monty Colvin, their main songwriter, is cousins with or whose cousin was Dee Dee Ramone. We, I thought you were going to say Sean Colvin. No, Dee Dee Ramone <laughs> was, was like his, his dad's cousin or whatever. So That's bizarre. It is. So the idea that the Ramones and Dee Dee is the Ramones song, one of the songwriters who wrote these two-minute power pop, you know, full throttle gems that that Monty didn't seem to maybe adapt that for some of his material. And don't get me wrong, I I think that he's a great songwriter. It's it's that that thing we're talking about with tighten it up, get to the essence, you know, uh, a little less indulgent with the the riffage in the beginning and the end. Or or be a pro or just go be a prog rock band. Like really yeah. commit to that. Like I I I love prog rock sometimes. So and there's some great prog rock bands like go do that but they don't do they're not proggy enough to tim's point like it, yes there's a lot of guitar riffs and a lot of changes and a lot of harmonies but it's not really proggy i think there's a couple points where they do some really um interesting like tempo changes and like key changes i think arrow has a key change in it that's mind-blowing but it's not progressive i don't think it quite tra- no, crosses bon the threshold key changes <laughs> Right, right, right. So to to that point, you can hear why they would be successful touring with King's X. Yeah, King's yeah. X is definitely a, a you know a more progressive band with a cl- cleaner sound. By cleaner, I mean not quite as as heavy and and distorted. But I really wonder how they went over with Dream Theater's audience, for instance. Um. Well, I mean, they were they seemed proggy at the time. Now this would have mm-hmm. been before this record. You'd have to. T- I haven't listened to those yeah. records, but I remember, uh, you know, um, people were paying attention. Now, okay. they, I, re- I also remembered it was uh, it was one of those gigs where the opening band like gets a tiny space on the stage and the lighting's kind of crappy. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know what I mean. Dream Theater pulled that where like they had them play really up front, and it was almost like the house lights were on. <laughs> um, so I remember it being kind of unremarkable in that way, but. Uh, I think people are into it. I remember, you know, a lot of people were buying merch and this, everybody was, the house was pretty full and I think it was at the Cleveland Agora, which is a pretty good, decent size uh, venue. Um, there was a, a dream theater tour VHS that came out after their tour with the Galactic Cowboys and the Galactic Cowboys get one scene in it where they're on the bus and they're harmonizing. They're just on the bus practicing and harmonizing. So maybe that's a clue as to what, you know what? Where they thought the the crossover was going to be not that not the Dream Theater is known for their harmonizing, but that kind of sweet melodic sound that you get from the harmonizing is was present in an early Dream Theater musically. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the part that connected more so than obviously they're not nearly as progressive as Dream Theater or anywhere in the. But they had enough. They were heavy enough that. I think it worked, and then there was enough variety and just adventurousness, adventurousness to the music mm-hmm. that people were compelled by it. This is 1996. Did this album stand a chance on rock radio? No. 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 All right. No. Let's move on then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any song that's, yeah. 
Now there's because if you think about it, where Metallica was in terms of studying the bar for like radio friendly metal, you know, it's Hero of the Day and that kind of stuff. I will say that maybe 1992, 1993, where programmers were scrambling to to find whatever people were going to listen to now that right. uh, hair metal had been wiped away, that this might have gotten a shot the way that King Missile or, uh, you know, um, what, you know, whatever weird, you know, butthole surfers or whatever weird band got one hit out, out of that era because they were just throwing whatever onto the playlists. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine a lot of like rock radio in 96, 97, 98 listening to them and, and thinking, oh, wow, I like the heavy riff stuff. And then when the chorus comes, actually not liking it yep. because it's just too poppy. Right. They wanted something angry and disturbed ish. All right. What was going on at the time? Let's talk about our overall ratings on this record. Were the album. Better EP or decent single? Jay, where do you fall? Oh, this is hard. Because when I just listened to the record without analyzing it, um, I fade a lot. There are portions of it that seemed unremarkable. When I went back through and actually sat down and really analyzed it and took all my notes, uh, I liked it a lot better. (laughs) Uh, which is usually not what happens. It's usually the opposite. <sighs> I'm going to say a worthy album. I mean, I we'll, we got the editing thing out. Uh, obviously, this does not need to be 70, 70 minutes. I don't know. Is this the longest record we've ever reviewed? Uh, maybe aside from Use Your Illusion <laughs> 1 and 2, this might be the longest. <laughs> on a single disc? On a single disc. This is pretty yeah. close. I mean, you can't get much more yeah. time so, on there. I mean, so we, We've covered that. Everybody knows. The and Japanese version has another song. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, yeah, so the songs can be edited, but it's so unique in the way and what they're doing here, yeah. and they're so talented. Um, and there's no songs on here that are terrible, you know. Uh, at worst, they're a little bland. Um, but there's something on here where I, I can't listen to it and I skip. You know, we, we review. For me, when I get to an EP, it's like there's three or four songs um, where I'm just skipping them. I can't even. But I can't bother even to listen to them. Um, so I'm in a worthy album. You know, it's not perfect, but I think it's worth uh, worth checking out. I I agree with you. I I think it needs to be a much shorter album. You know, nine to ten songs, and you and you've got it. But yeah, there's I mean, there's so much interesting stuff going on with the vocals and and the interplay of the of the different approaches on different songs that i think if you restructured this i'd like to I, I might sit down and like try to do a playlist where i create what would be the perfect like nine or ten song uh you know vinyl lp for this because there's just there's a lot of cool stuff and then like you said there's a couple songs where if you could just trim 40 seconds out of this or a minute off the back end like they just make these songs tighter and you know have a actual producer come in and tell them where to snip and chop yeah. and that kind of stuff yeah. that would have helped a lot fortunately we can't do that aspect of it uh but there's definitely there's definitely a worthy album in here and it might you know be up to the individual person to figure out what those songs are but there's definitely a worthy album uh, amongst the 14 songs so eric yeah that's exactly where i am too um 
you know, there's songs I like better than others, and uh, there's nothing on here that's completely awful. Uh, you know, it it just as we've talked about editing it down, resequencing it, um, maybe splitting it up into two or three EPs, something like that. Uh, it's a lot to listen to at once. You know, uh, and Jay was talking about how the first time he was kind of iffy on it, and then as he listened to it more, he came to like it more. To me, that's like a Coen Brothers film. You watch a Coen Brothers film, the first time you're just getting the new, you know, you're getting the outline of the story and who the characters are. And as you watch it again and again, you pick up a little bits of things going on. This this album to me is the same way, and that's exactly the the same reaction I had to the very first Galactic Cowboys album when I heard it was the first time I was like, this is a, a wall of sound mess. And by you know the seventh or eighth time, it was one of my favorite records of that era. So I, you know, I think that if you've listened to this once and written it off, then, you know, maybe slip one or two of these songs onto a playlist and and see what you get out of that. Um, there's nothing really really wrong with this record. It's not like an A plus record by any stretch of the imagination, but completely a worthy album. What's uh what's going on with this album cover? One, it's the about the most nineties thing I can imagine and in, in just the way it looks with all the gradients and the terrible fonts. But what what is actually the artwork? I can't make it out. It's I, I bel- a metal ahead. metal fish. It's a machine fish. Oh. Okay. <laughs> what what angle am I looking at the fish at? Those two orange things are its eyes. Oh. Apparently so like looking down. Monty Colvin sculpted it out of garbage. Yeah. Oh. So he's like I said he's earlier he's a painter yeah. and uh does artwork. Also, uh, you know, one thing maybe we didn't touch on is their run at, at Geffen obviously was tense and they thought something was going to happen that didn't and then they broke up. And the uh, the head honcho Brian Sagal at at Metal Blade was a huge fan of theirs, so he literally was like, "Geffen's done, we'll sign you." So they might have also thought this was their last, you know, last. This was their hail mary chance to get something out there. So that might also be why they there's so much material on this album. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and then why an EP followed it up with even more songs. Yeah. So yeah, they probably had a bunch of stuff and i think a lot of the songs at the very beginning like the struggle and uh feel the rage and stress i think all of that is a reflection of what they had just been through you know putting five six years of their lives into this band and you know not it not working out right all right well eric thanks for bringing this uh to the table uh this was glad you guys enjoyed it interesting listen and i hope that people give it a shot you know maybe in small doses at first maybe just uh, a couple tracks to sort of digest and get the feel of it. But I think there's, there's definitely for a a wide range of people to check out uh, based on the different uh, stuff that we've talked about with regards to the sounds on this record. So thanks for coming back on and, and uh, being a part of the show. Thank you for We want to remind people, dig me out podcast.com. You can go and you can suggest records for us to review we throw them in our hopper our patreon folks vote on them or you can join us at patreon.com forward slash dig me out to support the cod podcast join the union uh at two bucks a month you get the union sticker which uh very proud of those jay did a, a bang up job designing those 
and uh, there's hidden messages in the stickers if, if you uh, <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing. And um, if you like what you heard, you can leave us some positive feedback over at iTunes. So for JM Tim, we're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Whoa.